I was talking about unbelief and skepticism, if you recall. Okay, restart. Unbelief, skepticism, and cynicism. Now, I know you're all familiar with this, and if, you've, if you're a part of this culture at all, you'll know that to make any sort of truth claim in this world on Christmas or any other, uh, any other day, to say that something is true for everyone, uh, you better have a host of studies, empirical scientific studies at your back if you're going to make a truth claim, and even then, you might find uh, you're not entirely believed on any, on any level. It definitely is an age of skepticism. Even our most, uh, you know, I don't know what you call them, sort of our, our most black and white tools of discernment, uh, the tools of mathematics and physics, have become so complex and uh, counterintuitive that uh, any sense of certainty from them is kind of lost to the laity, as, as we are in this regard. And in fact, even the men and women who devote their lives to studying math and physics will tell you that the ultimate nature of reality has slipped so far beyond what we as humans can understand that all we can do is grasp at it mathematically and metaphorically. We can't even stand on that as a certainty of what we know to be true. There are so many paradoxes at, 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 the, at the physical level. So the best we can do is throw metaphors at reality and accept paradoxes that we cannot really believe in in any way that honors what we consider to be the truth. But so there it is. That's what it is. And so when the eyes of the 21st century human look around, of which I am one, we see chaos and overwhelming complexity and also a bewildering array of options regarding what you could believe if you so choose. And therefore, many people, and I, I would say understandably, abandon the quest for truth altogether, and subsequently look for strategies to numb the despair that, in my view, invariably follows. So humans come in all shapes and sizes and temperaments, but there are certain spiritual realities that are recognizable in all of us that we all share across the globe that makes us human. One of these traits is the desire to know what is true and what is not. That is just a human, as long as there have been humans, there have been people searching for truth and to discern that from untruth. And we delight when we find something that is true, right? Which is why it's so despairing when we think to ourselves, well, how can I actually know what is true and what is not? We delight when we find something that we think is true and we treasure it. We hold on to it and it gives us peace. We call it enlightenment is one word we use for it. True things bring peace, ultimately, even truths that are difficult. And so there's this tension in our lives and in our culture. We desire true things. We're designed to be truth seekers. We hunger for it just like we hunger for food and thirst for water. But we are told, usually implicitly, sometimes explicitly, that it's a fool's errand to look for this food or to find this water. There's none to be had. It's merely illusion. Now, I would say, and this is why I'm talking about this today, that Christmas exposes this tension rather neatly in our society today. Christmas, unsurprisingly, began as a, as a faith celebration, a celebration of God coming to us, Emmanuel. And in a very real sense, it was and is a celebration of truth with a capital T, a true story. God, the source and author of all things true, came to earth as a baby to show us his character and his willingness to experience the pain of this world, its messiness and its joys too. So truth came to earth 
as a baby. In the Gospel of John, referred to as logos, which in the Greek is a word for rationality or truth or about 600 other things too, but that's one of the things it can be interpreted as. That's what it was. That's what it started. Now, it's become a kind of nostalgia for faith, for Jew and Gentile alike. It has a memory of faith in it in our culture today. And so the holiday season, as you all know, has become more sentimental than truth-seeking or truth-proclaiming. It has become a memory of faith. And like all memories, it starts to fade with time. And as the memory fades, so does our sense of loss surrounding this holiday in particular. And I would argue that just like and I, 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 you know, this is not just my, I'm not just spouting off, but there are, there are studies behind this, but there are stages to grief. You're all familiar with the stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally acceptance. We do that as individuals. Um, we do that corporately, as a community, as a culture. And as the quote-unquote meaning of Christmas, as the truth-telling of Christmas gets farther and farther away, a large section of our culture is going through the stages of grief, with regard to Christmas. And I'm going to go through a very brief, and this isn't central to my theme here in my sermon, but just a brief little historical synopsis. If you don't agree with it, that's fine. You can be wrong on your own time. Um, but I would say that the stage of denial was the 60s and 70s, roughly speaking, that, oh no, you know, we're not going to lose faith as a culture or, or you know, and again, I'm using Christmas as a, as a proxy for the larger cultural wars, but you know, Bob Dylan said the times there are changing, but they'll change back again. I mean, however you want to uh, describe that, that people just were sort of in denial about the loss of faith as a culture. People kept a kind of optimism. You can read it in the, uh, theology books and, and ecclesiological books written in the 60s and 70s, a kind of, well, we're, you know, people are moving out from the church, moving away from the church, losing faith, but it'll, we, here's the strategies by which this will fix this. Moving into the 80s and 90s, people began to move into a space of anger. And that's the second stage of grief. And as far as Christmas goes, that be, when we first start hearing these thoughts or con concerns on our meeting, whatnot, of the war on Christmas, right? You've, and um, the anger, as far as uh, Christmas is concerned, took that form of a, of a, of a war. You know, is there a war on Christmas? Uh, who's waging it? What are the stakes? How do we push back, speaking from the perspective of the Christian church? But, of course, the whole discussion of war on Christmas is just a part of that larger discussion about what does it mean to be a Christian in a faithless country, in an increasingly faithless country. Christians often, erroneously in my view, but be that as it may, they often frame it as a war because they're angry and it feels like an attack, hence war. They're losing something and still angry about it. And I would argue, too, well, time will tell if I'm right, that we are moving into the bargaining stage. And you see this more and more in the media, in the courts, in various parts of, okay, well, fine, okay, but how about we get we keep this, but you can have that. We keep this, but you can have that. You know, it's like a we're, we're getting into the horse trading uh, bit of Christmas. And I'm not going to, this is all just things that occur in my mind. This isn't the gospel being preached. But, but I think it's important just to verbalize some of these things. These are experiences that some of us have as we move through this culture. And Christmas is curiously tied up in American culture, whether you're Christian or not. So the message from God with regard to the loss of Christmas 
in terms of the center of the truth, the truth telling and the truth celebrating and the story of Christmas of God come to us. What is the message for the church in this new culture, constantly changing culture? The cynicism of the age I already indicated, the increased secularization of Christmas, the subsequent stages of grief that I've very briefly articulated that could be totally wrong, but is how I look at, through the, at it. Well, there is a message for us, I believe, from God to us with regard to all these things. It's drawn from the lies of the Old Testament prophets. It's affirmed by the poetic imagery of the psalmist, stamped with approval, I would say, by the words of Christ himself in the gospel. And that message is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. None of it does. And that's my Christmas message for December 2017. It doesn't matter. I like it. Thank you, yes. Let us pray. No. And it doesn't matter because, you know, if you look at your life, my, or my life or anybody's life for that matter, who's a follower of Jesus, maybe you're surrounded by lions on all sides. But it doesn't matter. And if you feel that people every year or every day, every Christmas, that people are deriding the faith or ignoring the faith more and more in the public square or in the media or on social media, it doesn't matter. Why don't all those things matter? Why can't we just forget about them, which I encourage you to do? Well, obviously, it's not some sort of nihilistic, despairing cry. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. This is not Pierre, who was eaten by the lion because he said he didn't care. You guys know that reference? Children's, Children's book of Pierre who didn't care, so he got eaten by the lion. Look it up. <laughs> but it's also not the it doesn't matter of a lost cause. That's one we often say, well, it doesn't matter because it's all going to pot and to heck with it. You know, who cares? That's not true. It doesn't matter because it's a one cause. We don't have to be concerned about it because it's already been won. I see way too much hand-wringing and bemoaning on the part of we who follow Christ. I will happily include myself in that list. I forget myself. I forget Jesus sometimes. Christmas is a good reminder of the insignificance of my little whining diatribes in my kitchen with my wife. And I'll tell you another thing about this culture that's going to pot <laughs> as I become an increasingly old man. <laughs> but you know what? How petty do we look when we whine about stuff? And how petty do we look when we engage in these foolish, I don't know, happy holidays versus merry Christmas wars? It just looks so petty. And it takes the gospel and the good news and shrinks it into something that didn't bring me to church, that's for sure. And I need to be reminded of that. Because I know all these things, you know all of them, but I think I need to be reminded of that all the time. That, you know, God, as, as people say, when God's got this, right? It's not in the Bible. It's not a, not a Jesus quote. But there's a truth there. Um, maybe if Jesus came now, he'd be like, God's got this. Maybe he would, you know, he adopts the language of the time, all things to all people. At any rate, I, I don't need to worry. I, I can't change the culture with my little church. I can't change, I can't even change my wife's mind on something that's important to me. <laughs> I can't change anything. I'm the most powerless individual I know. That's not entirely true, but I'm close. There's too much whining, and I need to stop it. And you need to stop it. We all, as a church, need to stop it with regard to Christmas and the culture wars in general. After all, 
God, the creator of all things, spoke to Moses out of a burning bush, was not consumed, parted water for him to save a people, did he become a child? Did this God who made a universe so vast, we can't even see the extent of it, did he become a baby? Was Jesus the Son of God in a way that no one else ever was or ever could be again? Did angels announce his birth? Did Mary carry that knowledge with her through her adult life? Did he really go about Galilee praying with power, healing, and curing people of their physical and spiritual ailments? And in the end, was he really betrayed by his own follower, tortured, killed, and yet all that evil was just for God's greater glory, and indeed for the, our own salvation? What a weird story. Could all that be true? And if it is, if it is true, and if you believe it, or are even trying to believe it, Lord, help my unbelief, then what could possibly go wrong for you? I mean, you know, you might shed some tears. I guarantee you, you'll shed some tears. And I guarantee you, in a worldly sense, many things will go wrong for you. But what could possibly go wrong for you with a capital W? Nothing. Nothing at all. Because that would be the greatest gift of love that anybody could give you. Because it's God who created you and loves you more than anybody on this earth could love you. Could his plans be thwarted? If he's for us, then who could be against us? I mean, I find Calvinism generally to be confusing. But there's a, a profound seed of truth in this theological vein that you can't mess up God's plans. <laughs> you just can't. God's not going to give you that power, thankfully. And what is more, there's a constancy to God's character and ergo a constancy to our mission, right? Our mission doesn't change. That's a comfort, that I wake up every morning with the same mission I had on Thursday, that I have on Friday, that I have on Saturday, and so on. It doesn't change, and it doesn't change from generation to generation. So what if this generation is messed up? somehow different than other generations were messed up in different ways. So what? Go and preach the gospel to all the nations. Well, that's simple. Well, it's difficult in practice, but that's a simple concept, right? Do so by loving God, loving each other, and teaching the word. Okay, that's simple. That I can do. Imperfectly, granted, but I can do it. We are given the strength and the power to do it. The imperfect does not mean you can't do it. <laughs> Teach the story. Teach the story. That is not the pastor's job. A pastor is only as, uh, I'm not going to use the word strong or powerful, as efficacious. A church is only as efficacious as the community is. I mean, that's just a basic fact of, of life because we're all a priesthood of believers. I have a role. You have a role. Teach the story. It's a true story not in a metaphorical or symbolic sense. It's as true as the sun in the sky, or as this music stand, or what have you. It is truth. And maybe your life is a mess. Christmas says that doesn't matter. Jesus was born into a mess. Probably a greater mess than you will ever know, unless all the children in your neighborhood were massacred at the time you were born. The messiness of your life is not a cause for despair or consternation for God, so it shouldn't be a cause of despair or consternation for you. Or me. 
didn't matter to him, to Jesus. He had a mission. He had a purpose, and he had a ministry. And in that regard, he is no different from each one of us here. We have a purpose, we have a mission, a ministry. Now, it's true, evil has a particular voice in each generation. And the the 20th century saw evil with a particular voice, uh, a voice of domination and destruction, death, um, you know, the the world wars, etc. Evil has a different voice, at least in this culture and this nation at this time. And that voice is not domination or power or death the way that it was. That voice says you have no purpose here. That's the new evil. You have no purpose here. Your very existence is essentially an accident of of the universe, which is to say a non-purposeful event with no point behind it. You have no ministry of any worth. You have very little worth. In fact, the whole notion of worth or meaning is just like an empty plastic bag. You can puff it up, but there's nothing substantial inside it. That's the voice of evil in our time. It's a very strong voice. Very powerful. It's interesting to to think about evil as as a voice throughout the the generations because this voice that I just explicated really wasn't there 50, 60, 70 years ago. I mean, in little bits and pieces, but not substantively. It's interesting how evil changes. Christmas pushes against that evil as powerfully as anything else I know. Christmas says you're worth so much to your creator that he was willing to endure pain and worldly hardship along with you. And that didn't start at the cross. That started at birth. He came into this. This is a world of pain. It has many beautiful and lovely things in it. But even birth itself is a painful experience. And even though you have a hand and play a role in creating (coughs) pain and hardship in this world, for you are a sinner... Because of the deep and profound love that he bears for you, he would come to this world. And you have tremendous worth. That's right, you too, Apollos. <laughs> and the rest doesn't matter. So God holds all things in the palm of his hand. You couldn't mess it up if you tried, as I've said several times. But you can participate in this plan of redemption. You can be a part of Christmas, God working on earth without spending a single second of your life worrying about what is going wrong. And that's how God would have you live. Be anxious about nothing. See the birds of the the air and the lilies of the field and don't be anxious about anything. That's how God would have you live. It's very hard to live that way. But you don't get that way by trying. You get that way by faithing. I just made that word up. I like that word. (laughs) Faithing. Cheryl, you want to comment on my use of... (laughs) Faithing many obstacles. Faithing many obstacles. (laughs) I'll edit that out. (laughs) But that's how you get there. You get to a a life free of anxiety, not by trying to be, not by trying to say, oh, it doesn't matter or it doesn't, in the sense of, uh, you know, um, if I'm experiencing this pain or I've lost this family member to a disease or I've, you know, truly painful things. But by having faith, that God has this and that it's all held in the palm of his hand. That's where anxiety leaves you. That's where anxiety dissipates. And that's, that's where we need to go. Are there people in your life who need your love, your prayers, and your help? I would say yes. Tend to that. 
Are you reading and learning and listening about the stories of the Bible and the person of Jesus? That's not my job. It's not Pierce's job. (laughs) That's all of our job together. We're a priesthood of believers. Tend to that if you're not doing that. Are you learning better every day how to pray and how to worship, how to speak good news to others in a way they can hear and understand? You can practice worship. You can practice prayer. People talk about it as if it's some, well, okay, I'm going to get angry myself, but it's something you can practice and do. Everyone can worship. Everyone can pray. You think about how you can speak the good news in this culture in a way that people can hear and understand. Do you think about how that might look in your life in a way that's not manipulative or anything like that? Tend to that. Live in a world of grateful expectancy. As um, Paul says, the whole world is pregnant. The whole world is pregnant and groans as in the pains of childbirth awaiting the coming of Christ. We live in a world of grateful expectancy. Perhaps you don't believe, or you do believe in Christmas and the incarnation of God come, but you aren't really sure if you really believe. (laughs) How much do you believe? What percentage of me believes? Or perhaps you're just feeling nothing this Christmas. How can I believe that God would come to the earth as a baby to deliver us from our sins? What evidence is there? Jesus requires my whole life. It's going to require some evidence. It's going to require some affirmation. And this is the part of the sermon I wasn't sure if I was going to include here because it would take a little bit of time, but I think we have the time. And I just want to say these things because I think they matter. And I want to put them in, if you're feeling strong in your faith right now, I think it's good nonetheless to have this information, especially at Christmas time when people are talking about these things. So let me remind you or inform you of some of the basic facts of the head and the heart about Christmas and the Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew infancy story that we just read. I'll put them to you as simply as I know how. The simple evidence with regard to Christmas, the birth of Jesus. One, and people, people think of the Bible as being written like the Bhagavad Gita or something, you know, hundreds of years removed from its subject source or what have you. And so I just want to talk a little bit about why we can trust in the Christmas story and indeed the Gospels as a whole. One, the time frame is correct, which is to say scholars, and I don't mean just Christian scholars, I'm talking about consensus in the scholarly community for reasons I don't have time to go into, agree that Jesus was a real person who lived at this time in Israel. King Herod of Agrippa would have been at the end of his reign about the time Jesus was born, just as it says in the Gospels. It's at the right time. Number two, all the towns and places are real and known places, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Nazareth, Judah, etc. This is not some made-up world. It's not mythology. You can go there today. today. Don't know if I recommend it. You can. Number three, Herod acts precisely like Herod would have acted. We know a lot about Herod. Paranoia and violence were his... That's who he was. He killed a lot of people, his own family members, his own wife. He murdered a lot of people, hundreds, thousands of people. And when when the Bible talks about him going and slaughtering uh, the children in the area of Bethlehem, that is in keeping with what we know of Herod. And in all likelihood, it would have... Now, it's interesting, uh, I go too far here, but 
one of the things that's, that, that's not mentioned in any of the other histories of the time, but it probably wouldn't be. Now, try to get your head around this. The slaughtering of children in, in uh, ancient Israel or the Roman Empire at that time would not have been as shocking or terrible or as newsworthy as the slaughtering of adults. This is a culture and a place where people regularly and consistently would expose their own children to the elements uh, to kill them for various reasons. They were unwanted or the father wanted a boy and it was a girl. Um, it happened all the time. And so the death of children for them was more expected and less traumatic than the killing of an adult in the prime of his or her life. So something to keep in mind. Um, and I could go on about that. But it was a small number of children in a, in a limited space. Nobody would care or record it in terms of people like Josephus and, and people. You know, There was no Jerusalem Times newspaper. You know, What we have are these particular individuals. Um, at any rate, astronomical signs, the star, you know, the star of Bethlehem. There are two or three different options as to what that could have been. Um, and I do not have time to explicate. You can just Google this stuff, star of Bethlehem astronomy. Uh, there was one event in particular, I'll just mention the near conjunction of Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn uh, that occurs roughly every 900 years that happened about this time, around 6 BC, which is a viable time for Jesus to have been born. Uh, there, you, know, you have a, a range of, of years there. Was that what the star of Bethlehem was? I don't know. It could have just been something that God showed to them that we wouldn't even know about scientifically, but it could have been that. They, they referred to planets as stars. It's not that that was, you know, it was all stars to them, so that would have made sense at the time. So, you know, again, you can Google this stuff. I'm not going to spend the next 20 minutes explicating it. But we have real people, real places, real people acting like they really did historically, and in fact astronomical events that would track with the biblical narrative. So this is not Zeus riding around in a chariot in the clouds. This is something substantive. And this is why scholars of both secular and faith-based, obviously, but people take it seriously. They study it. They don't believe it. <laughs> I want to be clear about that. If they read about a miracle, they discard that. But the Gospels and indeed the entire New and Old Testament are sources of information for our scholars for that time period. That's something a lot of people don't know anymore. I know most of you know it. But I think we forget that a lot of people don't know it. I grew up as an atheist. I grew up not learning about the Bible. I presumed the Bible was written as mythology. I really thought that. I didn't realize there was any historical merit to the Bible at all. A lot of people, until I was an adult, I thought this. So it's not like I was thinking about this when I was 10. <laughs> a lot of people don't know this stuff. We need to remember and think and know that a lot of people aren't thinking about Christmas in this way. They think of it as a fantastical and sometimes we don't do ourselves any favors, by the way, with the way we portray it. We portray it as fantastical and not earthy. Was it written, the Gospel of Matthew, or Luke for that matter, was it written hundreds of years after the fact? No, most people think it was written between 70 and 80 AD. Now, Jesus was crucified around 30 AD, so roughly 40 to 50 years after he was crucified. Most of the Gospels are written in this time period. Why? Because the disciples were getting old. And they no longer were, I mean, they were going to die. And so they committed to paper the things that they had seen and experienced. Now, the other fascinating part of this is that everything written in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was fact-checkable, which I've mentioned before in a lot of my sermons. You know, if you write something, I could write about something that happened 300 years ago and, hey, that's how it happened. Who are you to say, you know? Especially back then when you couldn't go back over the, you know, the microfilm. Yeah, anyway, um, 
But this wasn't that case. So if Matthew writes around AD 70 that there was a slaughter of children in Bethlehem, there probably was. Because people will just read that and be like, no, there wasn't. <laughs> Are you nuts? And that would, of course, undermine his entire intention, which is to get people to believe what he's saying to be true. So why would he invent things of this nature? It makes no sense. So people don't know that. They don't know that it was written by people during the generation of time that was there. So it's not, from a historical critical point of view, it's not crazy. It's not intellectually irresponsible to look at these texts and say, could it be true? It doesn't prove it's true. I, you know, we shouldn't go around saying, so it's true, because that, of course, turns people off too. But we can say, this is not crazy. We have much reason to believe this is anything written in, in Philo or Josephus or Aristotle and Socrates and Plato and all the others, more so. That's the head. Now here's the heart. It's all well and good, so you say. I'm having an imaginary conversation. <laughs> <clears throat> it doesn't prove that any of it is true or the virgin birth or you know, these things. That Who can prove that? There's one, and I can't, and I would say that to this imaginary person, I can't prove it. But there's a reason I believe it. Well, there's many reasons. Primary one is here. In Matthew chapter 1, as we just wrote, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Joseph, in a dream said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Because he will save his people from their sins. He calls him, the angel tells him to call him Jesus. Who knows what the name Jesus means? Cornerstoners. <laughs> Was that? God saves. Yeah, that's right. God saves. I mean, uh, Jesus is Josh, Joshua and Jesus, same name. Joshua is Yahshua. Yah is the first part of Yahweh, and Shua is a Hebrew verb meaning to save. Yahshua, Yahweh saves. So when he said, call him God saves, that's what he's saying. That's what the name Jesus means. He will save his people from their sins. Why do I believe? When I looked, as an atheist, when I looked at people, and at first it was Bill Sutton, but that cone expanded, and I saw many people of Christ and got to know them and saw them in their church, their place of habitat. That was so alien to me. <laughs> church was so weird to me, and it's so weird to me now to be a pastor. <laughs> um, I saw people who were saved from their sins, and I don't see that anywhere else. I haven't seen that. I don't see that anywhere else. I see people trying very hard. I check out self-help books by the thousands from the library. I, okay, by the hundreds. I'm not a very good worker. <laughs> but I don't see God, I don't see people being saved from their sins except through Christ. I won't even say in the church, just through Christ. We gather as a church to worship, but that's the only place I've seen it. And I saw it there. As an atheist, I saw it. I saw evidence. I saw people whose hearts appeared to be light even though they were on a one-way road to death with no meaning or purpose, again, in my mind. I saw people whose souls were full of joy, even though their life circumstances didn't seem to indicate to me they should have that much joy. They weren't rich enough 
They weren't good looking enough. They weren't wealthy enough to be full of joy. What was wrong with them? I didn't tell them that. (laughs) But I thought it. And above all that, I saw people whose sins did not control them. Because I just saw that everywhere, and especially in me. Sins controlling people in my family, in my life, in my people doing what they do not want to do, as Paul says in Romans. And I envied that freedom. I really wanted it. I wasn't sure if I could believe, but boy, did I want that. I've got it now. I'm very, very grateful. My sins do not control me. They're there. They're present. I like to think, and in fact, I believe that they bleed away from me with each passing year in Christ. I have improved, which is a scary thing (laughs) to think of. (laughs) And the same is happening for each one of us who are in Christ. I can see it happening, and you can see it. I hope, in yourselves and each other, as the, as the uh, sculptor takes his chisel to our lives and shapes us to become more of who we are. I have that joy. My heart is light. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And that's the only way, the only reason I would really believe. You can throw all the historicity at me, and it's important, that stuff is important, to get me to the point where I could think, okay, maybe there could be something to that. But I'm not going to make that leap unless salvation is real and the Holy Spirit is real. And I have to see evidence of that. And that's an evidence that comes from you and me. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. And by believing it, the fragmentary parts of my soul were knitted back up again. There are scars there, just as there are scars in the body of Christ. But God is knitting me back up. I'll be made whole once more. And that's why I believe. And that's what we should tell people, in your words, in your experience, in the way we need to pe- meet people with the head, and then we need to show them our heart. And that's, you know, if you, if you do that, that, then you've done everything you can do. And if they don't come to Christ, if they don't respond, or, or they are rude, or what have you, and I take you back to the beginning of my sermon, it doesn't matter. <laughs> God's got this. You're not responsible for them. You're not even responsible for you. In a, It's a dangerous thing to say to people in church. <laughs> You're not responsible. <clears throat> but in a way, we're not, right? God handles our sins. All we have to do is worry about the faithing. I think I'll end there. Let's pray. <clears throat>